Habakkuk chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, if you'd raise your hand, the ushers will come down front and give you one. If you get a Bible that we are giving you, it's page 509, because nobody knows where Habakkuk is. Um, It's in the crispy sections of your Bible, and uh, you have no idea why it's there. So we're going to tell you today, uh, Habakkuk chapter 1, page 509 in the Bible that we're giving you. Why doesn't God do something about all the wickedness in our world? Why why does it look like the the righteous seem to suffer and the uh, wicked seem to prosper? Why does it seem like prayers, like prayers within the realm of God's will don't go answered or seem to struggle to find an answer? Why, Why is that? Those are questions that if you're a thinking person, somewhere in your life you've wrestled with. Why does good seem to win and why does bad, uh, or bad seem to win and good seem to, to struggle? Why, why does that happen? That is, in essence, the outline of Habakkuk. If you've ever wrestled with, well, what is this minor prophet and what does it have to do with me? It is, it is Habakkuk asking those questions of God and his world. God, it seems like things are out of control. It seems like you should be doing something about it. And, by the way, when God answers Habakkuk, Habakkuk is confused by his answers. He's not bitter, by the way. We, we opened up chapter 1, the first 11 verses last week. Habakkuk starts with a question. And the reason why is because Habakkuk is old enough to remember the good old days. Um, my boys have a tendency to watch um, old TV series. They're into um, Andy Griffith right now, okay? If you ever watch any Andy Griffith show, that's sort of an illustration of Habakkuk's mind. He grew up in the days of, uh, of uh, Josiah, the king. It was a revival time. It was happy days. It was wonderful time. It was living in Mayberry, okay? That's, that's what Josiah had going on, and Josiah dies, and everything goes to heck in a handbasket. It all falls apart. Sin is starting to, to flourish, and good suffer, and bad profit, and it seems to be out of control. So, so Habakkuk asks a question of God in verses 1 through 4. So let's read it just to, to remind ourselves of where we're at in this story. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise so the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous so justice goes forth uh, perverted. Habakkuk is a little bit frustrated because he's been praying for revival. I remember, I remember when it was good and your people loved you and they obeyed you and they longed to serve you. I remembered that and it seems like it's all gone. And so Habakkuk begins this whole book um, praying to God, like, God, don't you see what's going on here? And then verses 5 through 11 is God's response. Before we look at that, can, can you relate a little bit to Habakkuk's perspective? Sure you can. Um, sin is very popular in our day. Um, it seems like violence and addictions and immorality are unbelievably high in our world. False religions everywhere, and the church doesn't seem to be doing a very good job with it. I mean, they it's compromising on the truth, and they're tickling ears, and all the things that the scriptures tell us to, to be careful of, and it seems to be out there. And so there's a little bit of where we could just say as well with a back of God, do something. 
This doesn't sound anything like what you want. It doesn't sound like any way possible to move the gospel forward. It isn't transformational. It is totally selfish, stuck on sin all the time. God, do, do something. So we can, we can relate to Habakkuk's his, his question or his confusion. And these three chapters are simply this dialogue with God about what he doesn't understand and his confusion. And, and last week, Neil started with that question. Why, God? Why aren't you interested in the sin of your people? And so there's a good news, bad news response from God. God says to Habakkuk, I got it. I see it. I see the sin. I care about the sin, and I'm going to deal with the sin. That's the good news. So whatever frustrations that uh, Habakkuk has, maybe he's feeling a sense of calm there that God responds and goes, you're right. Bad things are happening. But here's the bad news. Habakkuk, I'm going to take Babylon. You know the wicked nation, Babylon? I'm going to use them to judge my people. And it sends Habakkuk into a massive confusion. Like, how is that good? How is a bad thing like Babylon coming into Judah to deal with Judah's sin a good thing? Because aren't they far worse? Aren't they a more wicked nation? And so that's a, that's a legitimate question. It's kind of like if I were to put it in a vernacular you would understand. It would be like looking at America and going, man, it's not Mayberry anymore. I mean, where is Andy Griffith when you need him, right? And, and, and so God says, you're right, you're right. America is really screwed up. I'm going to send Aikida in to deal with him. And we go, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute, God. That doesn't make any sense at all. You mean that godless people, the terrorist kind of people that don't care about children or women, they just kill indiscriminately, that people, you're going to use them to judge, judge America? So whatever that made that feel like to you, that's sort of what Habakkuk's dealing with. Like, I know we got issues, but they really got issues. So I don't, I don't like your answer. They're a godless, ruthless people, God. They worship idols. They mock you. We're bad. They're worse. I can't understand why you would allow the righteous to suffer at the hands of the ungodly. Fair question. Do you see why this book is relevant to us today? It's, it's the questions you ask when you're looking at your life and you're going, why is my marriage suffering and my God-hating neighbors seem to be flourishing? And I can't, even, I can't even handle the relationship I have. Why does it seem like the laziest guy in the office gets the promotion and I can work hard with ethics and, and I don't? Why is it that I deal with cancer and, and those other folks who don't have anything to do with you? I mean, they, they could get off of a murder rap on some technicality and they're okay. Do you understand? I just had a conversation just a little bit ago with, with somebody who is really wrestling with their own story going, I don't get it. I don't get it. What Habakkuk asks is what we all ask if we're paying attention. Every one of us at some point in time in our life have sat back and said, this seems to be not square. Like, God, you, you care about these things and, and so... You've changed my life, and I, I care about those things, but why does it feel like the bad prosper and the good suffer? And that's the essence of Habakkuk's question, questions we have to answer. In fact, here, here's, a, here's kind of a described question. If you look at verse 13 of, of chapter 1, kind of the second half of the verse, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he Good question. Among many questions you could ask when things don't seem balanced or right. What do you do, church? What do you do when you end up with questions and, and, and you don't necessarily have a quick answer? What, if, what do you do if you experience like Habakkuk does, God's 
communication of here's how it's going to go and you're not going to know the details. What do you do? Because Habakkuk has a growing frustration with the silence and a growing frustration with the little bit he's heard from God about what he's going to do. Here's what Habakkuk does. And I'm going to suggest to us today that the church should do the same thing because it's all we've got. Habakkuk steps away from the problem. He steps away from the sin of Israel and God's solution of Babylon to judge Israel. He steps away and goes, no, wait a minute. Let me, let me think for a second about God. And that's exactly what he does. And so I'm going to suggest to you today, that's what we should do. If you're in the middle of a struggle or a circumstance that doesn't sound right to you or it confuses you or it breaks your heart, then you need a bigger perspective. Instead of fooling around with what he didn't know, Habakkuk stepped back into what he was certain of, and it was about God. So if you watch the flow of this book, the first four verses of chapter one is Habakkuk saying, how long, God? In verses five through verses 11 of chapter one, God says, not very much longer. By the way, I'm gonna use a wicked nation to judge Judah. And then you get to chapter one, verse 12, and Habakkuk saying, all right, what do I know? What do I know about God? And he mentions five particular things in verse 12 that I want to suggest to you are always helpful for the church to remember. When you're dealing with things that don't seem right or balanced, when it seems like good suffers and bad wins, you ask these, you look at these thoughts and you'll get perspective. Look at verse 12 and it starts with this. The first thing that Habakkuk thinks about is that God is eternal. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God? God, you're different than the Babylonian so-called gods, right? You're, you're not like them. You're an eternal God. In fact, if you back up to verse 11, God talking about Babylon and, and their puffed up, arrogant, wicked ways, he mentions this. He says, then they will sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Here, here's what God has just told Habakkuk, of which I think is why Habakkuk responds back with the God being eternal thing, is that he, God says, listen, they're going to wipe out Israel and they're going to think their God did it. They're so messed up, they're going to think there's some might and power in their false gods. And Habakkuk hears that and goes, their God, their God, their God, who's their God? Their God has no power. You're eternal. You're the everlasting one. Their God is nothing. Who is their God? No one's greater than you. And so church, I'm going to tell you today that there is nothing more solid and more powerful or strength-giving than the eternality of God, which means, now just so you know, it means that he lives outside of your story. He doesn't experience your story in time. He doesn't wake up tomorrow and go, wow, I, wow that's really bummer. I didn't know. Boy, that's got to be tough. God doesn't do that. He lives outside of the story and the flow of history because God always was and he will be after history, right? No change. He's, he reigns and rules outside of time altogether. So in our world of craziness, in your world of craziness, when pain is this big, when the problems are this big, when the pushback of sin in your life or the world against Christ in you is this big, right? God is not experiencing it like you. He's outside of time and history. He's outside of the story. So just step back and look at God. He was there before your problem, so-called. He'll be there after your problem, so-called, because our God is eternal. Habakkuk looks at the story and goes, okay, wait a minute. Sin, Israel sinning, God's going to use a more wicked nation to judge his people. 
What do I know? Oh, God, you're not surprised by this story. You're not going to react to this story, which takes us to the second thing that Habakkuk witnesses here. He says in verse 12, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God? Just a a small little thought on this is that Habakkuk thinks about God's self-existence. The the word that he uses for God, he calls him Lord, which is the word Yahweh translated Jehovah, which means I am, right? It's when, when Moses said, well, who do I tell the people sent me? And he said, well, just tell them I am. I'm too big to give a name to. I just always, I'm, always am. I'm self-existent, self-determining. I am God. I am. And that's the word that, that Habakkuk uses when he says, my Lord, my Jehovah. My self-existing always was, always will be God. That God, that's who is here. Which is Habakkuk remembering that, God, you're not dependent on what happens. You live outside of it. And by the way, whatever happens doesn't affect you. Not like us. Doesn't affect you. Doesn't change you. It, it, it doesn't add or subtract to you. Some, sometimes Christians, even Christians, and just had a conversation with somebody just 20 minutes ago who think that somehow because, because God doesn't change your particular story that somehow God doesn't care. God doesn't go up and down emotionally with the circumstances in our life. God is self-existent. He is not hurt or wounded by or weakened by the problems. He is not weakened by Judah's sin. He is not weakened by the solution of Babylon. He is not compromised. He is self-existent, self-determining. So whatever it is in your story, whatever the circumstances that you think aren't fair or too big or too bad, God is not looking at them going, wow, boy, I'm really disappointed. I'm really sad about that because he is Jehovah, I am, self-existing God. Make sense? Habakkuk steps back and goes, what do I know? I don't get that. I don't get the story. I don't get your solution. What do I know? I know you always were, so time's not your problem. I know that you're self-determined, self-existing, so you don't ebb and flow emotionally or circumstantially with this story. Here's the third thing that Habakkuk thinks about. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? Habakkuk thinks about the holiness of God. Not only is he eternally existent and self-existent, but God is holy, which means he is utterly and completely and absolutely and purely righteous in everything that he does. That's good news. Church, you should have just smiled really big there. Because if God wasn't holy, your story would, should scare you. Let me explain. Habakkuk is confused. He sees sin out of control. He doesn't understand God's solution to the sin problem. But he thinks this. My God is holy and he can't and won't do anything wrong. He's right. No matter what he does, he's right. It's good. Amen? God is holy in what he does. So I don't know what it is that you would put in the same kind of category of your confusion like Habakkuk, whatever it might be, whatever you're facing, but do your circumstances make you wonder if God knows what he's doing? (laughs) It's really easy for us to question God. Habakkuk remembers that God is holy and right and pure and he can't do anything wrong ever, ever. And so whatever it is you don't understand about your story, you can at least start with this. God is good. 
And whatever he's allowing in your life, he's going to use for your good. And whatever he is, he is purposing in your life, he's going to transform you and get glory from it. God is good, amen? He is holy. Here's the fourth thing that Habakkuk thinks about in verse 12, and that is that God is faithful. You are not from, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my holy one? We shall not die. It's, I mean, Habakkuk's statement there is so emphatic. He says it so confidently, and there's a reason why. He knows something about God. He knows that God is a promise keeper. He knows that God makes promises, and he never fails to deliver on his promises. He remembers what God promised Israel. Like, I'm going to make you a great nation. Nothing's going to destroy you. Nothing will snatch you from me. I remember, Habakkuk says, your promise because you're a faithful God. I, just to remind you of, of this story, Remember, God makes this relationship with Abraham, who's the father of faith for us. He's the father of Israel. And Abraham, he said, listen, I'm going to make you a great nation. And he's getting old in his years, and he doesn't have any kids. And so Abraham has two fundamental questions he asks of God. God, you promised me a family, and it looks like a servant's going to have to give me kids. And God takes Abraham outside and says, look at the stars. Abraham, count them. Can you count them? Well, your kids are going to outnumber what you can count. And it says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That somehow there was a connection between what he couldn't see and faith and God granting him righteousness, right? A covering. And that's an amazing enough story. But then he, Abraham asked another question. Well, God, you promised that I would have a place. I'd have a space. You promised a land. And so God began this covenant and he tells Abraham, Abraham, go get some animals. Go get some goats and some bulls and some heifers. And, and I want you to cut them in two and separate the pieces. Now, just to put it in context for us, um, in that day and age, this was the equivalent of a contract. If you and I made a deal with each other, we would, we would have a lawyer drop a contract and whatever lawyers do to make it official or somebody would notarize it or whatever, and it would now bind us legally to what each of us committed to. In that day and age, cutting animals in two and all the gory, bloody stuff between them, the two parties would join arms and pass between the pieces saying out loud in front of the community, well, let this happen to me if I don't keep my end of the deal, right? So I can just imagine Abraham going, wow, God and me are about to sign the contract. Like he's made a promise and we're going we're gonna to put it in blood. And that's really good. And then the Bible tells us that God caused a deep, dark, dreaded sleep to fall over Abraham. He's out cold. And then God takes up the form of a fiery, pillory cloud and passes between the pieces. Saying, God saying, I promise to me. I promise to such a high degree that I will keep this promise. That it can never fail. Watch, if God passes through those pieces saying, let me cease to exist if I don't keep my word, can God cease to exist? Can't happen. God made a permanent promise and it had nothing to do with Abraham. It had nothing to do with some person. It had everything to do with God, his faithfulness, and his commitment. Habakkuk steps back from the problem of sin in Judah and God's solution with Babylon. He goes, what do I know about God? What do I know? We won't die. Here's what I know about God. He made a promise. He said we'd be a people. He made a blood covenant to himself, to Abraham, for me, that I'm his child and I can't ever be lost. So church, what promise has God made you? Psalm 103. Remember the promise? 
The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Apostle Paul wrote this. You know this, but listen to the promise. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? No. And all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Come on. Church, smile. Do something. Listen, God made a promise to Abraham. Habakkuk remembers and says, God, you won't kill us. Uh, no matter how this turns out, I don't understand the sin in Judah. I don't understand your solution with the Babylonians. But I know this, we're not going anywhere. So in your story, whatever your circumstances are, whatever weight or pushback in your life, whatever hurts or pains you're going through, God will not drop you. Amen? He will not leave you. Nothing can snatch you from his hand. Here's a fifth thing that Habakkuk remembers about God. Let me read the verse again. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment. And you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. Here's what he remembers. He remembers that God is almighty. God, you ordained it. You ordained them. You're in control of this story. You dictate the terms. God is all-powerful. He is sovereign, and he does whatever he wants to do. The writer of Psalms says this, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and earth. Whatever he wants. That means nothing, absolutely nothing happens in this world outside of God's control. Nothing happens that he couldn't stop and nothing starts without him allowing it. Do you believe that? That's his sovereign control. That's what Habakkuk remembers. You ordained it, God. You're in control. You have the power to take dead hearts. Hearts not, not just passively dead, but aggressively at war with you in their dead sin. And you can radically transform them to love Jesus. You can do that. You have the power to change us. You have the power to take the impossible things in our lives and do amazing, miraculous works with. Now listen to me, okay? This list I'm gonna give you are your exceptions to the rule. He has the power to take your broken marriage, which you think can't be put back together, and you have no way to love him or to love her or to get back into it and commit to and selflessly serve. He can take that kind of brokenness and transform it to the image of Jesus for his church. He can take your wayward kids who said goodbye to you and said goodbye to God and he can go and get them wherever they are and bring them to life. He's the one who can take um, your broken lives and health and incomes and whatever else you'd put in the broken category and he can heal it all because he's almighty, amen? 
It's very important that you said amen a little bit louder than that. Here's why. Because Habakkuk uses as one of his ways to survive not knowing what God is doing. You know when you're looking at your life and going, I don't like that. That isn't right. That doesn't fit in the Bible anywhere. That kind of hatred, that kind of dissent, that kind of brokenness, that isn't right. That can't be the gospel. That isn't the gospel. And you're confused and you're asking God, God, how long will sin reign? You have to fall back into God's ability and power. He is almighty and he can transform it all. Do you believe that? Yeah. And you're not the exception to the rule. Listen, listen very carefully. Every time we do this, there is somebody, a percentage of somebody in here or the conference center who are listening there and going, not me. Not my husband. Not my wife. Not my kids. Not my sickness and, and, and not my story. God is not all powerful. And it's not about God's power. It's about your obedience. And you have to wrestle with what Habakkuk wrestled with when he saw this problem and God's solution and was totally confused and didn't know the the bottom line. He went to what he absolutely knew about God and that God was almighty. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Is God big enough for your confusion? You see why that's a, that's a good question? Because it doesn't say that if God gave you the outline and the syllabus of your life where you knew every outcome of every particular thing, good or bad, and how it produced this fruit, you're confused like Habakkuk about your life and your story. Is God good enough for your confusion? Because if he's not good enough, then your confusion should lead to despair and disappointment and hopelessness and fix your own problems. Is he, is he good enough for your problem? How about this question? Is he holy enough to never be wrong? You see why that's important? Because some of us look at our circumstances and can't see at all how this could be what God wants. And if we hear, again, that God is almighty and sovereign, then we think that he's doing bad things and we question him and we get bitter inside and we resent and we walk off. So the question is, do you believe he's holy, pure, right enough to never be wrong about your story? Really important. That's the anchor of who you are. If you would sit here and go, yes, then you can leave and have a great day. If you're not sure yet, let me give you more of what Habakkuk does in response to his confusion. So we see that he looks at God. Here's the second thing he does. Verse one of chapter two, he waits This is the hard part. This is the part nobody wants. He waits on God. He says in verse one, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Isn't that true? It's not that God doesn't have an answer. Like nobody of us in this room probably would be like crazy enough to say, well, no, God has no answer to my story. It's not that he doesn't have an answer or that he doesn't deal with problems. It's that he doesn't deal with them when we think he should, right? Like we want them done yesterday, everything yesterday. Because we don't like pain and we don't like suffering. We don't like to learn. We don't like to grow into transformed holiness. So we want it done yesterday. And so Habakkuk makes a statement. It's kind of a funny statement. It's kind of like him paraphrasing this. God, I'm just going to go over here in the corner. I'm just going to go over here and sit and and think about what to say when you tell me how stupid I've been for not trusting you. That's my plan. 
just going to hang out over here and wait on you. And, and I believe this. I know waiting is difficult. It is so hard to do, but it says more about your faith than your confession. Who couldn't say, Jesus, gosh, I want Jesus. Who, who couldn't sit in a worship service and raise your hands and say, yeah, you're more than enough for me, God. In spite of all these particulars, you're more than enough. Who couldn't do that? Waiting on God proves your confession. Sitting still, patiently trusting, believing that he's almighty and he's holy and he's eternal and self-existent and self-determining, waiting on God says more about your confession than your words. You get it? Because who couldn't just say, yeah, I'll take some Jesus. A lot of people could. So I want you to see why it's so important because it's directly connected to the third thing he does here and it's what God suggests to him in verse four of chapter two. It's this absolute statement. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Have you ever heard that before? Yeah, you have. The Apostle Paul uses it a lot. He, he mentioned it in Romans chapter 1, Galatians chapter 3. It's, it's mentioned by whoever wrote Hebrews chapter 10. Um, the righteous shall live by faith. So what do you do, church, when bad prospers? What do you do when good suffers? What do you do when prayers go seemingly unanswered? What, what do you do when God seems slow to respond? What do you do when pain and problems go seemingly unnoticed? Live by faith. You like that answer? Because that's what God gave Habakkuk. Remember what faith is? Hebrews chapter 11, if you want to study faith, just go spend some time in Hebrews 11. The writer says this, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And then all the rest of chapter 11 is, are examples of what that means. So let me just repeat this again. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. By faith, Noah Without rain and without water, built a boat. <laughs> didn't see anything, didn't know anything. He heard God, obeyed God. By faith, Abraham took his one and only son and said, God, I suppose you can give me a whole other family through somebody else, so I'm going to offer my son up as a sacrifice to you. By faith, Moses, you know, led the people out of Egypt. And on and on, you can just read that. There's many, many examples of by faith. The assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. It means to believe the word of God. So when I was, when I was addressing your problems generically, like whatever circumstance you're going through, that, that you have a tendency and I have a tendency to put in the exemption clause, right? The exception to the rule. Now, when I said to you, God is eternal and God is self-existent and God is holy and God is almighty and God is a promise keeper, when I said that, did you go, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's, it's absolutely, that's true. I'm good to go. Thank you for that. I'm off to the races. Or did you start that list of, wait a minute. Now, this problem here, that's unique to me. It's not fair. God's doing too much. I, again, I had a conversation just 30 minutes ago with a couple. And I just said this. I said, you know, it could be worse. I, don't, I didn't even know what they were going through. But it clearly, clearly was bad. And they said, yeah, it totally could be worse. It, it could be far worse. So God is being precise with you. 
He's being specific with you, like he was with Judah when, when he told Habakkuk, yeah, the sin, I see the sin, I'm going to deal with the sin, and I'm going to use wicked people to get it done. So, live by faith. It means to believe God's word. It means to believe the unseen. It means to speak, think, and act in obedience because of what God has already said. And not to trust your own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. And I have to stop here and just talk to a few of you. Every Sunday we gather, there are people in this room who love Jesus. And then there are people who say, I know of Jesus, and I'm here to, uh, to make my, my husband or my wife or my mom and dad happy. And so I, I'm not into Jesus. I mean, I believe he's a historical figure, but I, I don't believe his, his godness. I don't believe his salvation for, his atonement for sin. Well, I'm going to talk to you for a second. Because you got problems too. And whatever problems you have will probably be exaggerated in years to come because you will be the perpetrator of your own pain and problems. Because you'll try to sort them out and you'll just add more problems to your problems. You're going to be left at the end of your life or somewhere in your life going, this really stinks. And I've tried everything I can try. And I remember that guy talking about faith, the righteous to live by faith and believing these things about God in spite of what you can't see. Well, here's where you find faith, just so you know. Faith isn't something you learn, and it's not some religious system to buy into. Faith, according to the scriptures, is a gift of God. He gives faith to people who the Bible says are stuck and broken in their deadness, unresponsive, at war with all the good things of God. And God grants faith and belief to people who see their need and no one else. So watch this. The gospel, you, you know this, it means good news. The gospel can't be had if you don't see the bad news of your own life and your sin and your choices. You really are as bad as the Bible says you are. No one righteous, not even one. And the wages of sin is death. Eternal separation from God. But the free gift comes to Christ. Faith. Faith. And what happens in believing what you can't see is that God somehow is to transfer your sin to Jesus and God pours out his wrath against sin on him and he transfers Jesus' righteousness to you and you walk free. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Because the law of spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. That's the truth. That's what happens. And so if you're sitting here today still on the outside looking in and going, I've heard of Jesus, but I haven't put my faith in Jesus, everything else I said to you is foolishness apart from faith, which is putting trust and your life into what you can't feel or touch. It is God's promised finished work in Jesus Christ applied to your life. And the rest of it is about him transforming us into the image of Jesus. So what do you do with this? What's the so what to this? Really cool three chapters of a very small minor prophet who has basically one thought. Why God? What do you do with this? If you're sitting here and you have sympathy or you're feeling pathetic about your particular story, can I suggest a couple of things that we learned from Habakkuk? Let God define your circumstances. Let him be the greater influencer of your problems, your stories, your sin than anything else. He is doing something in your life. I just told you he's about transformation. He made not only a promise to save you, but to change you. He made a promise to make you look like his beloved son, Jesus. He's committed to that, pro to that process. Do you believe that? So whatever he's doing, he's going to back it up. 
And he's going to use circumstances, sometimes seemingly bad ones, like Habakkuk endured. But what do you know? What do you do? You back up and you look at God. You know that he's loving. You know that he's intentional. You know that he's holy. You know that he's almighty. You know that he's sovereign. And you know that he's perfect and he's faithful. And he's doing something. Here's the second thing I want you to do. Remember, problems don't make you. They reveal you. So if, if in my conversation with you this morning, you've been collecting this file on the one side, of going, okay, that's God, that's God, that's God, and you are just rooted in darkness and bitterness over here, going, it's, here, here's why I'm failing. God doesn't know when to quit. He doesn't, he doesn't let up. The pressure's too great. He doesn't know what I can endure, right? And, and bad things are coming out of you. I want you to know that nothing that God is doing or allowing you to go through is doing anything to you. It's just revealing what you already have as a problem. Do you understand that? So if bad things are coming out of you like unbelief or bitterness or anger or resentment, guess what was in you? All of that stuff, it just needed a place to happen. You know, I've used this, and everybody laughs like I'm making it up as a joke. It's not a punchline. I was the happiest, easiest, easygoing, good luck, couldn't make me angry ever guy until I got married. <laughs> and, and I'm not kidding you. I, you couldn't make me. You could poke me with sharp sticks and I wouldn't get angry. I got married. Did marriage make me angry? No. <laughs> it did that for Norm, but not for me. No. Marriage revealed that I was an angry man. Needed a place to happen. So whatever your story is, however gory it is, if you don't like what's coming out of you, that's what God's working on. That's what God wants to cover with grace. And that's what he wants to transform. That's what he wants to take away from you. You understand? He wants you to walk in faith, crippled faith, because all that junk is in us, right? Here's another thing I want you to do. Remember this, that God always uses unholy things to do his will. Do not be surprised or disappointed. If God had to wait around for holy things to use, he wouldn't use any of us. He wouldn't use me. So if Habakkuk's looking at God and going, why would you use Babylon? They're unholy. Well, God has always used unholy things. There's nobody holy but him, amen? So don't get bitter at what mechanisms God uses to transform you. He uses unholy things. And then one last thing. God's justice isn't broken. It's coming. And I have to say this. My task was to deal with verses 11 or 12 all the way to the end of chapter 2. And so we haven't dealt with much of chapter 2. But verses, just so you know, verses 5 through verse 20 of chapter 2 is all about God telling Habakkuk, I see, I see Babylon's problem. And I'm a just God. And payback's coming. There's the woe to yous, right? Woe to him. And he says, they're stealing and they, exhort, they extort people. They're murderous and violent. They explored other people. They're idolatrous. I see it and I'll deal with it. So li listen very carefully. If you are a, not a Christian and that's your own confession and you're sitting outside of faith and trust in Jesus Christ, just know this, you will not escape God's justice. Just like Babylon won't escape God's justice. They only existed 100 years. God used them and took them. We'll deal with God's justice too, unless you're covered by the righteous robes of Jesus.
Every person who ever lived has to stand before a holy God and give an answer to his sin and rebellion against God, except for those who are draped in Jesus' robes. And God doesn't see our sin anymore. He sees the justice he poured out on Christ, and we go free. Amen? That right there is enough reason to have you come running down here saying, I want Christ. Because if you don't, you will stand before him just like the Babylonians did and experience all of his holy wrath for sin against him. And the good news is that you can walk free accepting the free gift of faith who is Jesus. Amen? So what do we learn today? There are a lot of questions that life throws at us. I don't get it. I don't get why sin seems to win and righteousness seems to fail. But we do know something specifically about God that brings comfort and peace in the middle middle of all those questions. God, you're eternal, you're self-existing, you're holy, you're faithful, and you're in control. Amen? And he's changing us into Jesus. So let's pray for his help. God, I thank you for your faithfulness to us. I thank you for this uh, small book that reminds us, God, that there are many things you're doing. We're never going to have any idea specifically um, how they all weave together, but we do, don't, we do know generally what you're doing. You are about getting your glory and transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. God, grow our faith in the unseen to know that you are um, a holy, almighty, eternal, self-existing God who we can trust. I pray for those who are hurting today, God. I pray that you would comfort them with these words. Amen.